Welcome to Dulles. We're a community of faith that embodies the love of Jesus for the good of our neighbor and the renewal of our world. We're so glad that you're listening. All right, very quick review for where we've been. We've been in this series. We're devoting the summer to the series we're calling Practice Makes Better. And it's all about becoming more of the image of God. And when we look at why, why spend time on Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Thursdays practicing at work, practicing in our relationships, in, in our interactions at home with family members, practicing the heart of God, the voice of God, why? Because when we look at the beginning of God's story and when he created humans, we see in Genesis 1 and 2, he designed us ultimately to live out the image of God, to image the creative beauty and love and power of our God. And nothing will satisfy you. Nothing. No career advancement. No special relationship in your life. Nothing that we chase after will ever satisfy the deep longing and craving that's hardwired into our spiritual DNA, which is to replicate the creative life of our God. And tragically, we get to... Page 3, chapter 3 of God's story in Genesis chapter 3, humans choose to decreate. Instead of replicating life, we decreate by taking control, by ruling, trying to be God and rule for ourselves, rule for our own control, our own power. And it throws the world and all of creation into chaos. And then on the next page, we have the first murder. And then we see disease emerge. And then we see things like slavery. And it, it's, it, it, humanity just spirals into this decreative experience where we live life wondering what in the world? Why is the news so bad? Why are we anxiety ridden? And then we come to the pages where Jesus arrives. And Jesus is the template not only is he God, he comes in human form. And when I was young growing up at the church, that always confused me. Like, why not just come as God? He came as God, but also as human, so as to live and fulfill our ultimate mandate, our, our design, our purpose of humans to image God. And he imaged God correctly. He did it flawlessly, and now he's our template. He's the blueprint. And Jesus said, you can follow the blueprint. You can actually do the blueprint, or you can just look at it. In Matthew 7, he says, everyone's building, everyone's building a future. You're building a future right now. Whether you consciously go to work every day or have your interactions at home and live life, whether you're aware of it or not, you're building a future. And you're either building a future that actually won't be significant and won't last and won't really replicate life, or you're going to pattern your life after the blueprint, after the template, which is Jesus. And so Jesus calls us to follow him. The word he used was disciple, become my disciple, become a trainee. Today, the best word, I think, in, in our language is apprentice. Become an apprentice who doesn't just try to be good or to have a Bible verse or some encouraging word in, in the heat of a moment or in a a crisis moment, an apprentice is training. We're not trying to be better people. We're actually training in the way of the one who imaged God flawlessly. 
We looked a couple weeks ago at prayer, practicing prayer. We don't practice prayer to try to earn God's favor or impress him or try to look religious. I mean, that's pointless. Prayer is given to us as a tool. It's actually, it, it, it wasn't designed for us to just call out to God for what we need. God, I'm in this situation. I need you to show up. So I'm giving you my attention. Prayer is a portal. Prayer is our portal to the power of God, the love of God, the timing of God, his heart, his worldview, what he thinks of broken humans, which of course is love and mercy. Prayer is the gift that God's given us so that we can become aligned with the one who wants to recreate in us his original intention, his image. Last week, Alton talked about the practice of stepping into risk for the sake of others. Practicing as a way of life. Practicing every week. Opportunities to speak life, to give hope to those who are hurting. Practicing the risk of being part of the activity of God. He used what I think a lot of us would say is a super extreme Example, And maybe you're not ready for it, and maybe you'll never feel the particular call of God to focus on rescuing victims of human trafficking, which was the, the main example Alton gave last week. Maybe for you, the stir of God's voice in your heart, your own life right now, is just a neighbor who's struggling. Instead of just waving through your car window, you actually walk across the street. Maybe that's the first step for you. All right, I'm going to just quickly adjust and just throw us into today's focus. And I want to look at the word canon. This is probably a word that you don't think often about when, when it comes to the legitimacy, the credibility, the genuine story of a creator. But th this is really summed up the process of recognizing the, authentic the authenticity of a creator is the word canon. Canon is a collection or a list of sacred writings that are considered or accepted as authentic or genuine to the story. And I'm going to use the example of Star Wars. Okay, so if you're not a big Star Wars fan, it's okay. I'm going to kind of explain this. And I'm not a, I'm not a super Star Wars nerd, but I've been, I care enough to know about the, the canon argument around the globe, the Star Wars canon argument about Ryan Johnson. Okay, so here's how a canon works. You, you have a creator, and, and, and what I'm getting at this morning is really the, the biblical canon, the collection of writings and letters and documents and books that make up the Bible, that make up God's story, the Bible. This is a, it's a very intentional very specific process of recognizing which letters, which documents in history actually are God's words to us. And that compiled together, collected together, makes up our Bible. And I'm going to use Star Wars as, as an example. A canon begins with a creator. And in Star Wars world, we know that's George Lucas. George Lucas created a story. What we don't often think about is that many times when a story is compiled from lots of different writings... The creator uses various writers to contribute to the story or to tell part of the story. And George Lucas, early on, after he wrote the first story of Star Wars, A New Hope, he called on Lawrence Kasdan. 
And then other writers like J.J. Abrams and Ryan Johnson become part of the can canonical writings of Star Wars, the official, authentic story. And then in the TV series, if you're not familiar, Star Wars has actually many more episodes that are t television episodes. And, and people like Dave Filoni and John Favre have contributed greatly to the Star Wars canon by writing many of the television episodes. And there has emerged in the last 10 years, the last decade or more, a debate about the most recent Star Wars trilogy and what Ryan Johnson did to the central character of Star Wars, Luke Skywalker. We go into the theater excited about another story and we see that Luke Skywalker is suddenly a recluse. And he's isolated away. He's not trying to save anyone anymore. And he's bitter. And everyone in the theater is looking like, well, what happened to Luke? This isn't who Luke is. And there's been so much debate and so much argument around the world that maybe Ryan Johnson's contribution needs to be removed from the Star Wars canon. And this is all to just kind of give you an idea that there are official writings. There have been many, many books written about Star Wars that are not considered part of the official canon. They're just some, somebody just wrote a Star Wars story. And it's, it, it doesn't speak to the authenticity of the characters or the tone that, that George Lucas intended, the, the, the realm, the galaxy that he's created. And then there are those writings that are deemed official. And that is a process. It's, it's called the process of canon or canonizing the writings. And this is what's happened with Scripture. There's a creator. And our creator used various writers human writers to capture who were familiar with and had close proximity to the story of God in such a unique way. And then this process was designed to determine the authenticity of Scripture. And this is all to speak to God's heart, God's desire, his intentionality to tell us, you and me, his story. God has no intention with you and I carrying around a big heavy book to look religious or have it laying out on a table so that people come into our home and they think something about us in terms of, oh, they must be, you know, they must be connected to or committed to a church or some kind of church expression. God has given us his story to introduce to us what he thinks of the world, what his intention was and is, how he steps into the mess of humanity and our struggles, how he intervenes, what his power looks like. And so the main point today, that I'm going to make, and I'll, I'm, I'm planning to repeat this, I, I hope I become repetitive with this today, is that if you and I were designed, if humans were designed to image God, then we must, we must consume his story. We must study the story of Eden. The realm that God intended, that he created. We must study what it is to break things through human selfishness and how human control decreates and leaves people hurting rather than experiencing the life of God. And we must study read and consume and study what it is to see God's plan to renew humanity, to remake humans back into 
what he intended in the beginning. God doesn't create ever, and then humans mess it up, and so he just walks away and goes to another universe and starts over. That's not what God does. God recreates. He steps into the mess, into what humans destroyed, and makes new. And this is the story that collected together is the canon of scriptures we call the Bible. I think a lot of us, if we're honest, would say, man, scripture's just, it's just hard to read or it actually feels kind of irrelevant. Does it really speak to the 21st century? And so we're going to spend this, these moments here this morning and then Wednesday night we'll continue to process this and unpack this together. The importance, the the, the, the critical, absolute essential Understanding that God loves us so much that he has intentionally communicated to us his story. So I'm going to review this. Um, the, the, I'm, I'm, I'm going to start at the beginning of scripture uh, and do just kind of a, a very quick overview to show God's heart. And I'm going to start this by talking about the Bible Project. Such an amazing, amazing uh, animation studio in Portland, Oregon that are really Ph.D. theologians that just understand God's story and Scripture so well. And they describe the Bible in a couple of, of unique ways that I want to just put on the screen here for you. They say, the Bible Project guys, the theologians say, together, all the portions of Scripture tell one unified story that leads to Jesus. Every part of Scripture is pointing towards Jesus, the arrival of the one who will image God correctly who will tell the story of God, who will approach people who are broken with the purity of God's love. Another way that they describe the Bible is that the Bible's the union of heaven and earth. The union of heaven and earth. The realignment of God's space and human space, which is what Eden was. The garden, the very beginning. We were to coexist with God. Just replicating life. Co-creating. We learned that a few weeks ago. We were actually designed to be co-creators with God. Following the example and the creative life of our creator. The union of heaven and earth is what God's story in the Bible is all about. So here we go. We're going to do just a very quick summary before we get to the, the core story this morning that I'm going to look at in Luke 5. Specifically, the Bible is the story of God communicated to us. Communicate it to you. We see this. That God, God is communicator. God is speaker of life. Intentionally speaking to us in the very beginning. Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created. And in this creation, we get to verse 3. And God spoke. God didn't just make things and then just sit back. So everybody can look up and be intimidated by this. Or he didn't just throw lightning bolts around. God speaks. And he speaks life. Let there be light. And there was light. We get to verse 26. And God said, speaks, let us make humans, male and female, in our image, in our likeness. So that they will replicate life. They will actually, made in the image of the creator, they'll be the one species, the one being in all of creation, all the universe, that will actually be life givers. Made in my image. Made in, a, in our image, God says. Verse 28, God blessed humans. This is a, a process of speaking. And he says to them, be fruitful. 
and increase in number. Be life givers. And then, of course, we broke everything because we took this calling to rule over life as replicators. We took it and we warped it into I'm, we're going to rule for ourselves. We're going to actually try to be God. And it, it just, as we've said, it, it just broke everything and left everything in chaos. And in chapter 12 of Genesis, we see God's rescue plan emerging. emerging. His renewal plan, his restoration plan is already beginning. When God says to Abram, the man early in the story of Scripture that recognizes God creator as God. God says to him, go from your country, your people, your father's household, to the land I will show you. And this is significant because it's Eden language. God is already beginning to move humans symbolically, very real, but symbolically to a promised land, a land that flows with milk and honey, to show us the movement of God to take us from chaos and decreation back toward the ultimate result of Eden once again. And when you get to the end of the New Testament, you see, oh, this is what Jesus ultimately came to do. We are now his church, part of moving planet Earth back toward the return of Jesus where he makes all things new. It's beginning in the early pages of Scripture. Verse 2, he says to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you so that you will be a blessing to all peoples of earth, to all nations. Then the cycle of decreating emerges again. This group of Israelite followers of God who are to be a blessing, to be the image of God to the world, they take control for themselves. They make their own idols so that they can have what they want immediately when they want it. And humanity is spiraling once again into separation from God and slavery away from God. Literal slavery. Because when we get to Exodus, this group of people are slaves in Egypt. God doesn't give up and go away and start somewhere else or throw his wrath and anger around. God comes down in mercy. Moses tending this herd of sheep on the far side of the wilderness, were told us, encounters this burning bush. God always meets us. He speaks to us. He speaks to you in your life, in your context. We think a burning bush. If you're driving on the Beltway or here on Route 50 and you see a burning bush, it may not resonate with you. It's just not part of our culture. Out in the wilderness where, where, where uh, Moses is, he's used to seeing wildfires, but he's, this one gets his attention because the bush isn't burning up. This tree is not being consumed by the fire, and so he's curious. This is what God does. God calls us. He attracts us to his voice. Moses comes closer. And when the Lord saw that Moses had gone over to look, God called to him. This is God speaking. He's communicating. He loves us so much that he wants us to know what he's up to, who he is, what his restoration plan looks like. And he will call you, he'll call to you, and he'll call you to be part of this plan of renewal. He calls him by name Moses, Moses. Let's go all the way to the New Testament. Again, this is a quick overview. The New Testament begins so intentionally by showing us that God intends to speak to us and never stop. It's remarkable in history. When I first studied this and understood this, it just was so profound to me that significant historical figures in the ancient world, particularly the Roman Empire, 
which was the era in which Jesus came to planet Earth, which was very intentional timing. The location in which Jesus arrived, it was all some of the worst poverty our planet's ever known. Some of the worst treatment of women. Some of the most oppressive government that we've ever seen in history. Jesus comes into that brokenness, into that humanity. And it's interesting that when a historical figure was so significant, it would be remarkable if, the right, if, if, if a biography was written about that figure. One, one biography, one historical document was written. It's so easy for us today to pull out our phones. I grew up as a kid before, you know, of course, before smartphones. And it, would, it, it was such a privilege to have notepads and pens. We just take it for granted. As if the whole world's always just written things down. It was so hard in the ancient world. It took so much work and so many resources to write a single document about a person. And so many of the Caesars, the Roman emperors, some of them don't have an actual official document written about them. And the ones that do, it's, it's usually one document. Jesus has four. Four documents are written to capture his life. And John begins the New Testament saying, not only does God intentionally speak, he is actually the word. God, uh, John uses the word, word, to describe God. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with the Father. And the word was God. Meaning Jesus. Je he's calling Jesus, who would arrive here on planet Earth, the message of God, the words of God. He's so intentional to speak life. He is the word of God, the voice of God, wanting to speak to us, to humans, to you. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, meaning Jesus, the word who would come to earth, through him all things were made. That's a big statement. He is the source of life. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of mankind. The light shines in the darkness. And the word, in verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. God is so intentional to speak to us. Not only does he speak and speak on mountaintops and in burning bushes and in the calling of people's hearts where they recognize God's heart, he eventually comes to the place where his words actually become flesh and blood. And we call that word, we call those words Jesus. Then we see, and again in this, in this abbreviated, speedy kind of overview here that we're doing, we see now the shift toward capturing the word of God, his heart to speak to us, to capture them in written form. John by the end of John's letter, John's gospel, verse 21, says this, referring to, and now he's speaking in the first person, this is the disciple who testifies to these things about Jesus and who wrote them down. He's now telling us, this is so intentional that God wants me to capture this. I'm writing down. I'm doing the hard work. This is not easy in the first century, Palestine, to write down the story of Jesus we know that the apostles, the eyewitnesses, we know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. In fact, if every one of them, John says, if everything that Jesus did were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have enough room for the books that would be written. We now have this 
This part of the story of Scripture to tell us God is so intentional to call us, to speak to us, to reveal his heart, his plans, his timing, his character, what he's going to do in the future. That this process has begun of capturing, actually writing down in the most credible form in human history. Today we've got computers and we've got GPS. Mackenzie just got Starlink this week because where she lives doesn't have internet. We've got all of this technology and we just take for granted that in human history, writing down, making the effort to write down and capture someone's experience with another, that was the most authentic, the most credible way to tell the reality of something or an event or a person. Luke begins his gospel account. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Luke is saying it's so remarkable what Jesus could do. He brought people back from the dead. He knew things about our past that no one knew. He came in love. He came speaking about regardless of my pain and my ugly and my mistakes, a future that's beautiful. He captured the imagination of a region of the Roman Empire, so much so that many of us have endeavored to draw up an account of the things that happened. Verse 2, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses of Jesus and who were servants of the word, he's calling Jesus the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you. He's writing, he thinks he's writing to a man named Theophilus. He was, his audience, Luke's audience was one man. Little does Luke know that God's intention is for him to capture the story of Jesus so incredibly that the whole world would be learning of the words of God so intentional for you and me that he would become flesh and blood. Paul, the Apostle Paul who writes 13 letters of the New Testament, he defines the remarkable that has happened. If God is powerful enough to speak to us, to send his words to us in flesh and blood, isn't God powerful enough to write them down? To use people to capture? Again, for the credibility of the story. Paul says in 2 Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed. In its inspired voice, we hear useful teaching, rebuke, correction, instruction, and training. Here's our word. Training for a life that is right, a life that begins to look more and more like the image and beauty and creativity of our God. This is why God has given us the Bible. All the collection, the the canon of Scripture, all the various documents and letters and poetry that make up what we call the Bible, it's very intentional by God's Spirit that He's given us this document so we would know His story and we would hear the words, the descriptive of God for you and me and for our world and our future. If the human purpose was to and will be again to image God, if that's our purpose, if that's what satisfies humans like nothing else will, nothing in your career, nothing in the money that you make, nothing in the people that you associate with or titles or trophies or awards, nothing is going to make you settle in and fill you with peace like living your design, which was to image 
and replicate the life of God. If that's what we were designed for, then we must study his story. We must read and consume the story of Eden. What was intended and what will be again, we know in the future. How human selfishness breaks things. And God's plan to restore us back to his image. Back to the call and lifestyle of imaging God. Okay, we're going to spend the rest of our time here reading a story. This is a short story. This is in Luke chapter 5. And uh, if you've been with us in our two years since we launched here at Lightridge, you've probably heard me read the story. You've been, you've been with me, you know, maybe a time or two where we've gone through this. God intentionally speaks to us. I'm going to give you kind of the overview of the story. There's no doubt about it. From beginning to end, we see the consistency of God's passion to speak clearly to us. To you. The question is, are you listening? That's the question we go into the story with. Luke chapter 5. One day, Jesus was standing by the Sea of Galilee, called the Lake of Gennesaret. The people were crowding around it. Uh, Jesus and listening to the word of God. Okay, so the closest thing I've seen this summer to what we're being told by multiple gospel writers is something like Taylor Swift's concert uh, tour this year. Think of the Beatles arriving in New York the first time and, and just the crowds at airports, um, you know, getting out of the car to go into the hotel and there's people that knew the hotel they're staying in and they're screaming and women are fainting and, you know, the crazy scene. It's something like that that Luke is telling us, that Jesus has already spoken into people's lives. He's healed with this remarkable power so much. There's something extraordinary happening in the Roman Empire, this very southeast corner, impoverished corner of the Roman Empire, and it's staggering. It's astonishing what's happening. This man is otherworldly, and yet he loves me. And the buzz has just taken off throughout Judea and in, in, in Palestine, so much so that there are people crowding, pressing around him, listening to the words of God. They're listening to the word of God who's arrived, speaking the message, the words of God. And in this context of already speaking on, this, on the on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, crowds are pressing in. We're told something about four of the future disciples. He saw at the water's edge, as he's already begun speaking once again here in this context to this crowd, he sees at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. It was about seven or eight years ago when I read the story again, and it just, it was like, I didn't see God, I didn't hear anything with my ears, I didn't feel anything, but it was like God was sitting next to me, this light bulb. It was, I'd never seen it before. Everyone in this scene is pressing in to hear more of the infectious words of Jesus, except the four fishermen who will eventually become disciples of Jesus, four of the twelve. They are busy still washing their nets. This is part of their work. They are still working Cleaning up, we know that they've been fishing all night. We'll see that in a moment. So they're probably exhausted. Jesus is talking. They're familiar with him. We know that. They're at least familiar with him. They're probably in awe of his miracles. But they've got work to do. And so they're sort of half-heartedly listening, if at all. 
And so Jesus does what he's so masterful at. Jesus is talking to the crowds, words of life about who God is, his plan for them. And at the same moment, he decides, I'm going to make this easier for the crowds to hear me. And I'm going to expose something in the hearts of these fishermen. And I'm going to do it simultaneously. The crowd has gotten so big that Jesus needs, he employs a technique. In our day, we would grab a microphone so we can be heard better. The crowd's so big. Or we, we elevate on a stage. Maybe if there was a rock nearby, like a big boulder, maybe he would have climbed up on the boulder. Uh, let me reread this again and you'll see what's happening. The crowd's so big, he needs to push back in the water a little bit in a boat so that he can be better seen and better heard. Teaching on the, the shoreline of, uh, this is verse 1. The Sea of Galilee, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. We'll get back to that. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, who will eventually become Peter. And he asks him to put out a little bit from the shore. Just push your boat out. Could I, could I borrow your boat? I, I see you're, you're still working. I'm speaking life. I'm speaking into people's hearts and futures. I know you're kind of still working and doing what's important to you at the moment. So how about if I use your boat and back up a little bit so I can be better heard, and I'm going to use this guy's boat to really speak into what it is to not listen. I'm going to speak into this guy's heart, which is distracted from listening to me. Does that make sense? Jesus is the word in flesh, speaking words of life, this guy's not really paying attention. He's still washing his nets. So I'm going to use his boat to be better heard by the crowd and to ultimately be heard by him. Because I'm going to get to the heart of what's really going on with, with, with Simon. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, asked him to push out a little bit from the shore. Then he sits down and continues teaching the people from the boat. <clears throat> I went on this retreat with 16 other North Point. We're, we're, part, we're a North Point partner. North Point Church is in Atlanta, and there's about 100 of us churches around the country, and 16 of us just went on a retreat together. And they, they really love on pastors. There's, there's some burnout that shows up at this retreat, and there's some tears and just uh, how hard, you know, life of, as a pastor can be. And then there's a lot of encouragement, and this, this lodge feeds us really well and just takes care of us for four days. And North Point doesn't want the cost to fall on the church or the pastors. So they raise money in Atlanta from North Point Church to take us to this lodge. And one of the investors, one of the donors is a senior, a chief at Chick-fil-A. He's like maybe number four in the... I haven't spent four days with a chief level officer of a major company, one of the largest privately owned corporations anywhere, ever. And it was just, it was a privilege and just such a sweet guy. He loves Jesus deeply and he cares about pastors. And he has a tree nut allergy. And he filled out the form before the retreat, just like we all did. Um, any special requests, any allergies. And he filled out the form. We get there, we eat dinner the first night. We eat breakfast the next morning. The cook's really great. Uh, sandwiches and our outing the first day. I, you know, ate mine. He ate his. We all ate. And then the second day, he bites into his sandwich. You know what's coming. And within seconds, I mean, these were his words later, seconds, he felt something. And he opens up the sandwich and he's like, there's pesto on the sandwich. 
there wasn't pesto yesterday. None of us had had pesto. And he asks the, the guy that we're with from the, from the lodge, does pesto have tree, nut, uh, tree nuts in it? And the guy's like, I don't know. So he radios to the kitchen at the lodge, and the cook is like, oh, no. I blew it. Yes. Yes, there's nuts in the pesto. And the executive at Chick-fil-A said, this has happened to me a few times in my life. I need to get to a hospital, like, quickly. By the time he got to the hospital, they had prepared to put a tube down his throat because his, his throat was closing. It was a scary, scary couple of hours. And that night, uh, our North Point leader from Atlanta always asks the pastor to pray for dinner. He, he asked me, hey, Brad, would you pray for us tonight? And I'm getting ready to pray. And the cook comes out and says, hey, Brad, can I pray? I need to say something. And the cook says, guys, I blew it today. It's right there in the kitchen. I've got it. The words are right there. Tree nuts. Uh, allergy. Big, bold letters. And I missed it. I just didn't pay attention to the words. They were right there. And, you know, the story happened, and, and, and our friend was fine, and uh, we got to spend the last day with him, and he was back to normal, and uh, we made EpiPen jokes. You know, he has one in his work bag. He has one in his backpack. His wife carries one. We were like, don't ever leave without your EpiPen. It reminded me of the story. The, disciple, the, the future disciples, the fishermen, they're right there. They're right here. They're in, they're in proximity to the life giver, the creator of the universe, who has come to speak life to us. And there's something in their psyche, there's something in their worldview, and this is where you and I ask, if we learn to read Scripture correctly, you don't just read it to try to be religious, I'm going to start my day, hopefully I impress God because I'm reading part of the Bible. No, what, the, the correct way to read Scripture is to read it prayerfully. God, where do I see you at work in the story? What do I see you doing? How do I see your heart being revealed to me in the story I'm reading. And where do I see myself? Where do I see a character consumed by fear? Where do I see a character consumed by defensiveness or pride? Where do I see me in the story? And if you're asking that of this story, I think maybe we can see ourselves in the fishermen. We want to say, how ridiculous. These fishermen, they're right there. What's wrong with them? Knuckleheads. You know, we start throwing names out like, Jesus is teaching, right? He uses their boat, and they, have, they think they need to work and finish their work. And yet, don't you and I do this? Don't we rush off to work in the morning, and don't we say things like, I'll get to God when I get caught up. When my fear dissipates, when I deal with this crisis, then, then I'll be able to breathe a little bit, and I'll be able to give time to God's words. It's so backwards, so Jesus just geniusly decides, ah, these fishermen, I'm going to call them to be my disciples. They don't know that yet. They're not listening to me. This big crowd's pressing in. What, do they think they've got more important work to do? I know what I'll do. <laughs> Simon, can I use one of your boats? Pushes out a little bit. When he had finished speaking to the crowd, he turns his attention to the fishermen. He turns to Simon. Put out into deep water, Jesus says, and let down the nets for a catch. Now, this is where Simon, now he doesn't say this, but there's enough information here. There's enough inferred that we understand that Simon is probably doing what you and I would do in our day, in our, in our, in our world, where there's maybe an eye roll. 
maybe Simon looks at the other fishermen like, Rabbi needs to stay in his lane. We're, we're, the, we're the fishermen. We, we've been working all night. We've been fishing all night. Simon, we know later, as we get to know Simon, he's a loudmouth. He can be obnoxious. He's opinionated, sometimes really struggles with pride. It's, it's, it's suggesting here, Luke is suggesting that Simon contains himself and practices some discipline because he starts this with the word master. He shows reverence. He shows respect by saying master. <laughs> Almost sort of like maybe a condescending master. <laughs> We've worked hard all night and we haven't caught anything. We're, we're the fishermen. And yet there's something in Simon. Maybe it's that still small voice that just knows. And yet... We've seen him speak truth. We've seen him do remarkable. There's something powerful about him, and maybe there's something powerful in his words. So he recognizes that it's Jesus who's speaking, and he says, but because you say so, because you are speaking this to me, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners on the other boat, who we happen to know, we, we learn later, are James and John. The others in the, the next boat come to help them, and they, uh, they came and filled both boats so full that they, they both began to sink. <laughs> this is the kind of sinking we want. This isn't sinking like, oh no, we may lose our fishing boats. This is sinking like, What? is happening. This man has just gone next level. We've seen him heal people. We fished all night. Simon Peter sees this and he falls at Jesus' knees and he says, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Now that sounds heavy. This is a humble statement. This is an act of worship. He postures himself at the feet of Jesus and he says, I'm not worthy to be close to to you, this is creator language. He's recognizing you can create life. We are the pros. We fished all night. What? There's power in your words. And that's what Simon's expressing. And Jesus says consistently what he always says to us. I will never bless you and give you abundance and talents and gifts that are just for you. I will never do it. Never. My blessing and my power and my words and you developing the ability to replicate life will not just be for you. It will always spill over to others. And that is the point that Jesus is trying to get through to these fishermen. And maybe that was the point he was making to the crowd. For he and all of his companions were astonished. Peter was astonished at the catch of fish they'd taken in. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. Don't let this freak you out. This is all about me training you to fish for people. I have come to rescue this world. I have come to speak night and day till I'm blue in the face. I will go to the cross and give my life for this. God has come in the flesh and blood to speak passionately words with clarity to show you I am moving humanity back to Eden. I am renewing and remaking. 
broken humans back into the image of God. And you, Peter, are going to be trained to fish for people. Okay, so I'm going to invite the band. I'm going to make this last challenge here to you guys as our band comes to close us. Rudy and I were sitting in a coffee shop uh, about a month and a half ago. And we were talking about, you know, one of the practices being reading scripture, taking it seriously. It's okay if you reach places where you're like, what in the world? This makes no sense. Write it down. Pull out your phone, note it down, and bring it, bring it to our Wednesday nights. Go to coffee with somebody here at church and say, hey, has this ever stumped you? What is, what is, does this, do you know what this means? And Rudy said, not only do we want to practice, become practitioners of reading scripture so that we understand it, and I noted this when he said it in the coffee shop. We want to read so much that we can interpret, we can apply it, and we can eventually explain it to others. See, then you are speaking with the, co- with, with, with the creator. You're actually giving voice of hope and life and God's spirit and power to those who need it. James 1.22, don't just listen to God's word. Don't just read it. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. So this week, if you're sitting there thinking, oh, I haven't read my Bible in so long. I don't know where to start. It's okay. We've all been there. We've all been there. And God's love, he turns to us and says, hey, can I use your boat? God doesn't throw wrath at Simon. He loves him and teaches him like a coach, like a dad. Read Luke. Start reading Luke this week or John. Write your questions down. When you're unclear about something, it's okay. We all are at times. This is why we need the community of the church. Join us on Wednesday nights. If you can't make a Wednesday night midweek to talk about, what does this mean? I've got this question. Why does this part of the Bible not... If you can't join us on Wednesday nights, find somebody to go, go to coffee with or to just hang out with and say, hey, can we, can we talk about this together? Here's this week's collective prayer. I'm going to put it on the screen. You can screenshot it. We'll email this out again to everyone. And this is my closing prayer before our band leads us here. Jesus, speak to me through Scripture and help me to read prayerfully. May your spirit guide me as I read so I clearly see you in the stories of Scripture and so I clearly see myself. Help me to deeply value the words of the Bible as your revelation to me. Of the world as it was supposed to be and will be again one day. Help me to see how broken I am apart from you and how I can become more of your image in the world. 